Well, hey there, and welcome to episode number 108 of Groove, the No Trouble podcast, which you can always find at notrouble.com. My name is Mitch Joel. Let's get on with the show. Sean Cooper, Taking Back Sunday. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for doing this. Where are you these days? I am home on Long Island right now. We had a little bit of break in between shows. We were in Florida this past weekend and stuff, so we're playing a lot of shows. But yeah, we have a little downtime right now. That's great. It's funny. I was reading a lot to get ready for this conversation. I travel a lot. I do a lot of keynote speeches. I'm on the road back and forth. They're almost like fly-ins is my association to the music business on this. Yeah. And I'm one of those people that very much loves getting home. And I got the vibe that you're somebody also who just likes, is very happy coming back home. Oh my goodness. I, I am definitely a homebody. You know, I got a, got a great family here and a great, great connection. And I love, I love playing the shows though, but, uh, you know, fly out of JFK all the time. And then we live on the South shore of Long Island. So we come over the bridge on an Atlantic beach and we just see the water. I'm like, oh, we're home. We're home. This is amazing. So, you it's know, a- it, it's all worth it. It's a crazy thing too, because I think back to when I was younger and you think, I want to be a rock star. I want to go and do this. And when, as you get older, you realize one is, I don't think people understand the gig at all. Like it is a really hard gig in the sense of you're constantly away. Time zones are wacky. You're catching flights at strange hours. It's not the type of job that people think it is. Yeah. And there, there's so much downtime, like in the backstage, like waiting to do the cool oh, thing. That, that's the hardest thing. So like, you got to find time to like occupy yourself and stuff. And I, I play some video games and things like that to, to blow off some steam and, and, and to spend some time. But yeah, that's the hardest part because the, the show is amazing, but it's only 90 minutes, maybe two hours a night. And then you got to fill all the rest of it. And, you know, you got to try to be on a schedule and you try to get some sleep and eat healthy and stuff. But yeah, it's, it can be very boring. I'm the same way. I tell people that you're not paying me for the hour I'm on stage. You're paying me for everything else. Exactly. Exactly. hundred percent. So let's talk about my favorite instrument, the electric bass. I love having these conversations, especially with people who are creating music that I really enjoy. Oh, thank you. Been following the band forever. So I want to go back to grade six. You're 12 years old, which by yeah. the way, I might submit to the court that that's pretty young to start the electric bass. <laughs> I, and I'm small. I'm a small guy. I'm five yeah. seven on a good day. So my hands were had trouble wrapping around the thing. But there was something that about it that connected with me, and it was almost immediate. I got it for my birthday. My birthday's in November. I got my first bass. Parents bought it for me from Sam Ash. I was just like, this thing is cool. I actually played in our student spring concert that spring with our choir teacher who was playing piano and stuff. And we had some really cool songs. I forget exactly what they were, but we had such a good time. My buddy Nick was playing guitar and we were just rocking out. And it was just only a few, a few months later. So I was like relatively proficient pretty quick. So around that time, it's early, early 90s. Yeah. The music scene is, I'm going to assume, really heavy where you live. It was. In fact, in my sixth grade yearbook, we graduated sixth grade to go to junior high. And I wrote, I want to be the, like, what do you want to do with your future? What do you want? What do you want your job to be? And I said, I want to be a bass player in a sick metal band because that mm-hmm. was a thing. And about like six months later, it was like, I want to be in a grunge band. Right. Just yeah, like that. Because but, I guess that time really was around Black Album and yeah. Nirvana Seattle. It was right around them, probably 91, 92, right? 
Yeah, yeah. But and and like my biggest inspiration to like pick up a bass and like want to be in a band was Guns N' Roses, 100%. Oh, I just cool. thought Duff McKagan was tremendous. Like I thought he looked cool. I, I thought he was just a badass guy. And and then like later on learning his bass lines and stuff, I'm like this guy's a tremendous musician. But at that time, that's well past Appetite for Destruction. You're into user illusions, yeah, zone, I guess, yeah, right? Yeah, Okay. So you were more in the operatic cinema. I was there when it was like appetite for destruction. Oh, well, I was an appetite guy through and oh, through. Because you? you were yeah, young Yeah, then. yeah, yeah. My, okay. my parents, I had to beg my parents. I'm like, there's only one or two swear words. Can we please get the cassette? So I got that for my seventh or eighth birthday, which, you know, I didn't, I don't think they knew what they were getting into. No, it's always like that. I remember when I was younger, I'm a bit older than you. It was hotter than hell. Mm -hmm. And that album cover was insane. Like yeah. they had pasties on the girls on the back. And I'm sure my mom bought it and was like, what am I doing here? Like yeah. the degeneration is starting right now. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think my parents saw that coming, but like they, I think they couldn't understand why I was so passionate about it. All my friends were into it too. And they had older brothers and stuff. So it was already, I was being exposed no matter what. So they're like, all right, we get in. So was there an, a real active rock band music scene happening at the time? Or is it one of those things where because you're young and playing bass, it's like being a goalie on the hockey team. Everybody needs you. Yeah, yeah. Like my buddy Nick, who I just mentioned, he was playing guitar and he was doing it at a pretty high level very quickly too. He had a guitar teacher that would just write tablatures out to like any song he wanted to hear. And I was like, he's way too good. I can't catch up with that. So what else can I do? I'm like, I, you know, my buddy Mark plays drums, he plays drums and taking back Sunday. I'm like, that that role's kind of taken. Like, no one's playing the bass and I don't really know what it does, but I want to explore this because I think it's only got four strings. It should be easy. All right. And is it easy? What do you think, Sean? I guess and no. Yeah, yeah. It's easy to get started on, hard to master. And then you have to care. If you want to do it at a high level, it's all about the nuance of the instrument. So in that sense, you know, it's art. But yeah, I think it's hard to be a, a good bass player if you're not passionate about it. So what's happening when you first start playing? Because you alluded to the fact that you're doing this at school, but yeah. you're surrounded by hard rock, heavy metal as well. How are you balancing the desire to want to play in a band, but at the same time, I'm sure there's the pull of music school. Yeah, that was the thing. I was able to take lessons after school. I was way into soccer. I did did a lot of that too. And it was pretty easy for me to balance. I would just go to lessons one day a week and practice whenever I could and stuff. But just playing with my friends too, playing in the basements in all our parents' house was awesome. And that was just like what you did on the weekends too. So it wasn't even an idea that you would go to school. It wasn't until high school that I, I started to explore the idea of maybe going to college for it. And did you? What was the path? No, the path was taking back Sunday. There yeah. was no plan B. Yeah, I love these yeah. stories. <laughs> yeah, I was going to community college and, and did them, some things and it wasn't really working out for me. I, I wasn't too interested. I was into like computer networking and things. And, and I, I, I'm like, I could probably do this for a job, but man, I'd really like to play bass. And then I just turned 20 and I joined Taking Back Sunday and I played my first show of New Year's Eve 2000 into 2001. At that point, was Mark already in the band? Was he one of the founding? members he was he was like the the band went through like a lot of different there was like a different drummer very briefly and then he kind of quit he wanted to do something else so there was like a kind of revolving cast of characters but john and mark and eddie were the essential founding members so how did you squeak your way in what was happening with how did that work out well what happened was mark was in the band and he was playing for a while and adam our singer moved up to play bass and he was just all over the stage with his bass. I would go and watch their shows just to support. But the stuff he does with a microphone, he was essentially doing with a bass guitar. And he was good. He was a good player. But he was just so ridiculously charismatic. And the guy you were watching that 
it was like it, it makes no sense that he's not the front man i don't even know if this guy can sing like he was singing backup vocals and stuff but i'm like this guy is a front man through and through so there was some turmoil with the the former singer he ended up leaving eddie says adam dude you have to sing. I don't care what you sound like, what you do on stage, you, you have to do it. So he was sliding over and then I, Mark got me an audition and, and here we are. It's wild too when I think about your age because you're thinking about it professionally but you're not studying it. So what are you yeah. doing before the band? Are you just playing in bar bands and weekend pickup bands and stuff or what are you doing? No, way worse. I mean, I was, I was kind of going to school. Yeah. 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 We, I, I had another band with Mark that I was playing in with our friend Dan and, um, we couldn't find a lead singer. So we didn't leave Dan's basement. It was just a three piece, a musical three piece. And we'd go and rent out a rehearsal space and we would record demos with our own money. And I was just kind of spinning my wheels. I didn't know where life was going to take me, but the focus was as career wise. I didn't think there was any hope because I didn't know any musicians that like actually made money. That would be amazing. But I don't know if I had the wherewithal to go to college and, and transition into something like that. that was kind of a dream that I think it, I, I felt like through high school, it kind of drifted away a bit. And I'm like, I have to focus on something like real and tangible, something in the computer field. And so I was doing that, thinking that that would be my career. I had no idea that Taking Back Sunday would, would be able to sign a record deal and go on tour and do all like the minimal things that we started out with, let alone have a 20 plus year career. But it happened, I guess, fairly quickly from when you joined. Absolutely. It did. It did. I joined the band. We recorded a demo, the first one with Adam singing, and we went on tour. We booked a summer tour and we were touring around in a minivan, crashing on people's floors. And it was just horrendous conditions. It was like two of the long longest, but most awesome weeks of my life. And we got back home. I was like, cool, that, that was fun. But, you know, that's probably the last tour I'll ever go on. And then Victory Records called that fall. And we were in the studio by December of 2001. It's an amazing story. Yeah. Tell me a bit about 2001 to 2003. Then mm -hmm. what? Yeah. <laughs> and so, then you come back. Because I, I couldn't really 100% follow it. But 2001, 2003, then 2010, you came back. Correct. Yeah. Oh, my so, God. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a wild ride. So 2000 to 2003, we, we get signed. Our first album, Tell Your Friends, came out. Uh, massive success in March of 2022. But it, it like we got so big so fast, but I had initially thought the record would come out. We'd tour through the summer and then go back to school. Like That was it. You know, Hey, that was a fun run. That was really cool. We got to do that. But it's very unlikely anything more will happen. And then things kept happening. We kept out on the road and I just got burned out really quick. I'm like, I don't know if this is how I see my life playing out. This is way too much. This is way too chaotic. And, you know, I'm getting pulled in 8 million different directions and I'm only 22 years old. I can't sustain this. So I had to step away. Wow. And what did you do? Like, what did you do from 2003 to 2010? What was your so, life like? So then John and I started another band almost immediately. He came with me. We both left together. And we started a band called Straylight Run, and we did that for the seven years in between. The wheels had finally come off. You know, we had major label deals and stuff. We put out our first record on Victory that had some really great success right out of the shoot. And then everything just kind of fell apart. People weren't listening to our records. We made a record on a major that really didn't know how to market us or do anything with us. And it didn't really connect with our fans either. So it was just disaster after disaster towards the end. And I thought, okay, here we go again. I'm going to go back to school, figure it out. And then Taking Back Sunday kept, came calling again, which is amazing. Do you think about what would have happened if you hadn't left, though? Because now you can look at it in a different way. This, this moment in time where you decide to leave but still do music, so it's still that grind. 
Yeah. If I, if I hadn't left, I was in a very self-destructive way. So it wouldn't, I don't think it would have been very, very good for me to stick around. So I don't know. And I, I, I think the band would have probably fallen apart some way, somehow back then. I, I don't know for sure, but we were like, it was best that we went our own ways and came back together stronger. I'm curious about a bit that early time, especially with Tell All Your Friends, because there's something about when artists are creating music. And you alluded to this idea that, you know, you thought you'd do a tour and see what happens. A lot of times when artists are recording an album like that, they're looking at each other like, this is something. So what was going on that you in your brain, you weren't like, this is going to be huge. Of course, this is going to be huge. You know, uh, a big thing with that record is we had demo-itis. We had four of those songs on the, what we call the Tell All Your Friends demo. And when we re-recorded those songs, we were not happy with the direction they had taken with the direction of the producer and everything. I remember we were starting a tour. This is like January of 2002 at the band Rival Schools. And we're in the van. We're making notes. We're making notes in our notebooks and stuff. There wasn't cell phones and stuff to, to make your notes on then. So we're, we're writing everything down with pen and paper. Like, okay, Adam, you're going to call the producer. I'm going to call in the changes and we're, we're going to fix it. We're going to save it. It's going to be all right. So we, we take a couple hours. We listen to it a few times. We got all our notes together. We call the producer and we say, okay, we, we got the changes we want to make. And here they are. And they go, oh, wait, you don't understand. You're over time. You're over budget. This is your record. And we all just went. It was like the air coming out of a balloon. We're like, all right, well, we gave it our best shot. It's not what we wanted, but the songs are there. Maybe it's going to connect. How do you reflect on that, though, now when you think about it? You're more mature. You're more wise. Can you see this kind of youth inability to see a broader picture? I mean, this is a big album. A thousand percent. Yeah, we just got platinum plaques for it. Like, it's pretty insane. Really? That, and that, that has continued. And people are still so excited about those songs that we wrote. Adam was a teenager writing a lot of those lyrics. But I, I do think there's a timelessness to them and there's a, a nostalgia wrapped up in it. And I appreciate a lot of the choices they made. It's a much better sounding record than we would have achieved otherwise, for sure. There's uh, choices I don't agree with and stuff, but there's choices on every record that I don't agree with, too. Like it's a collaboration. So I appreciate the producers and all that they did for us. And they did work their asses off for us because the budget was so slim. I think it was a $10,000 record. So good. I love yeah. those stories too. It's yeah. like you take this shot, you don't know. And that's the one, the ones you work on and toil over the ones that no one cares about. Yeah. That, and that was very similar. That was very similar to Straylight's record, The Needles of Space, which we had a huge budget. We had a whole lot of time and made it exactly what we wanted and didn't, didn't matter. And that was defeating in such an, another way. When I think about live bands and I've spent my fair share of time having the privilege of being backstage and getting to be friendly with so many people. I'm always interested in, we do multi-nights. I'll go out, watch a show and go, the band's killing it. You go backstage and the band is like in a fist fight about how bad it was. And it really gives me pause because as somebody who's on stage too, like there's, you know, I'm saying the same thing basically, but it's weird. It's a different room. Like There's something between the audience, the band, and then this space in between that I can't, quite put my finger on you have great shows bad shows there's something with music too where bands will do everything right and put out the album that's just right and it doesn't land do you look at it and say that's an external force or do you look inside and go maybe we didn't put that like i know rick rubin talks about this yeah. idea of it being you just put in your best effort and you can't control what other people think that's nice to say but there's a lot on the line when we do this stuff 
Yeah, I mean, because like with, with all the records I've put out, like I know just from a bass player standpoint, I've put my heart and soul into everything I, I've done with that. And, and the amount of time spent on like minuscule sections of a song to get that filled just right or to lock in with that drum fill and, and do everything in my power. Like I don't, I think very few understand the amount of time and effort put into it. And when it doesn't connect, it's so defeating and, and it, it really affects you personally because it's hard not to take it personally. Like this is my art. This is what I created. And this is something that I really believed in with my friends and I thought people would enjoy it. And that's not the case. It's a heartbreaking thing. So I don't know. I don't know if there's an external force and, or, or maybe, you know, it's a little bit of both. Maybe you didn't do your best effort. Maybe your best wasn't good enough at that time. Maybe you weren't tapped into to what was going on or maybe it's just not working for who knows. It's the toughest thing to admit that it's just not a meritocracy. Yeah. It's like yeah, the yeah. good, this doesn't work out, even if you're good. Oh, yeah. And there are so many bands that I believe in and I want them to just have careers so they can continue on and like it, it doesn't work out for them. And it makes me furious because I, I just personally, I want another record from these guys, but no one's given them the money to do it. Yeah. Well, move to Canada and deal with what we dealt with. There's so many amazing bands who could just never break. Yeah. Big in Canada, nowhere else. Just didn't happen. To this yeah. day, they can do really well at arenas, large, large venues, and just no one knows who they are anywhere else. It's amazing to see. Yeah, fascinating. So it's such a crazy, crazy industry. So you're playing bass, you get into this band, you're playing a certain genre of music, and yet you're inspired by a whole bunch of very interesting bass players, and not the least of which would be people like James Jamerson and Jacko yeah. and Wooten. I'm always curious how those players enter your world when you're that age playing that type of music and knowing what's going on in the scene, especially. Yeah. I spent hours on Victor Wooten's website trying to figure mm -hmm. out open hammer plucking and the tapping stuff he was doing. And he had that song classical thump, which yeah. just blew my mind. I was like, this is one guy on one base. What is going on? So I was working on that stuff while I was entering taking back Sunday. And there was an original demo with the, the old singer where there was a piano part and I was recreating the piano part with outlining the chords and, and then tapping with my right hand and doing that. And that's kind of, I think, what got me the audition. Like I went in and played that. They're like, wait, what are you doing? This is ridiculous. So I, I had the melodic sense from the punk rock world to not overdo it. But I, I found a way to kind of incorporate those things early on and stuff. I've since gone away from it. It wasn't really something I was interested in for a lot of the other songs and stuff. But there was some finger picking stuff I do on the song Great Romances on the intro and, and, and things. So I was just like, does this work? Are the, do the guys think it's cool? And they were all like, hell yeah. So it was nice to have the support of those guys when I was going off on these kind of base tangents and not sure whether they would work for these songs. But how do you find Victor? Does someone introduce you to his music? Where does it come from? I, my dad. My dad worked in Manhattan. And he would take the train and he would sometimes be stuck at Penn Station for a minute. And he'd bring me home a copy of Bass Player Magazine. Ah. So, so I was getting those, you know, kind of regularly, then eventually got a subscription. So I think it was through there. Yeah, because this was like pre-internet and stuff. So I would read about these guys. And then like for my birthday or something, I'd get a Jocko CD or I'd get a Victor Wooten CD. And it was one of those things like all like spaced out and few and far between. My CD collection before I started making my own money, I probably had like 20 CDs, you know, maybe 30. So it was pretty sparse. But yeah, that was my introduction. Talk to me a little bit about Jacko. I'm always curious what it's like to be exposed to an artist like that or an album like that when it's not the time in which that album came out. Because it it's one of those albums that I heard it probably mid-80s. Yeah. And it blew me away. And it wasn't from that time. You're hearing yeah. it probably mid-90s. Yeah. And it also blows you away. It's amazing. 
Yeah, I mean, just hearing Portrait of Tracy is like, what is this guy doing? This is the most beautiful thing I've ever written, and and it's on base, and it's a fretless that he filled in. Like, it's amazing, like his ingenuity to to do that and create something totally singular. And that that was just one of those things. The CD my dad brought home, and I was like, wow, this guy's amazing. And it was very fun to to explore that world. Tell me about your dad. It sounds like he was really into great music and had good taste. Oh my God. Both my parents were just uh, tremendous supporters. Like they were, they both loved the Beatles and stuff. So that was like, I remember hearing the Beatles as a young kid, like two or three years old in my dad's Monte Carlo and going like, oh, this is American rock music. I get it. And then I heard they had British accents. I was like, what? I had no idea. So the Beatles were so early on in my psyche, like it was just imprinted in there from the very beginning. I'm sure McCartney's bass lines were kind of weaseled their way in my head before I even knew it was happening. My parents were just huge supporters taking me to music lessons. New York State has like a, a kind of grading system called NISMA, where you go and you kind of compete and you play uh, different pieces and you solo. And I would do that. And it was really nerve wracking and stuff, but it was really good as a performer to kind of have that. But my parents were super supportive in, in taking me and spending the time in between work and stuff and just encouraging me. Did your dad listen to the Jacko album? No, I don't think so. And then you'd go back and go, dad, you got to check this out and be like, this is unbelievable. No, yeah. I would kind of just do stuff in my own time, just be off in my bedroom exploring and stuff. He'd be like, oh, this is pretty cool, you know, or help me set up my stereo and, you know, like, yeah, 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 this is is cool. But he would just kind of do his own thing. And yet punk somehow enters into this and not just punk, but there was this moment in time where you saw a lot of bands like yours playing with this new genre almost like a form of aggressive american rock pop even it wasn't straightforward chaos yeah like we saw with cbgb's and the ramones and things like that yeah you reflect back on there was something at that time up here we had simple plan which i'm sure you know those guys Mm -hmm. green day is another great example of this type of thing happening it was very unique yeah, yeah. My buddy Nick introduced me to Green Day pretty early on before the Dookie album came out. He sent me uh, like a cassette with Longview on it. He's like, check out this bass line. You got to bring it into your bass teacher. You got to yeah. learn that. So then I learned Mike Dern wrote that on acid. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, well, that's something I'm way too afraid to ever explore. But this bass line is cool as hell. So that was like Green Day was a huge gateway. And that led to Rancid and Matt Freeman's bass playing that right. always blew me away with how great he was and what he contributed to the song also while singing too it's something that i can never do no one wants to hear that but it was so powerful and there was such a melody to the songs too like a song like ruby soho it's just such a great song through and through it's to me one of the best songs ever written but it's a punk rock song and it was blowing up all over mtv and it's like when all of my teenage girl cousins started to get into it i'm like oh no it's crossed over it's not mine anymore but i'm like i can't deny this i love it But you're creating music in what genre? What are you thinking? When the band gets together and you're thinking about this music, are you thinking punk? What are you thinking? No, it was everything that Taking Back Sunday has ever done was just a natural progression and a collaboration of all its sources. Like Mark, our drummer, he's a big Bonham guy. So a lot of his yeah 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 he's he's a huge huge bottom bottom and and keith moon influence and stuff but then he's in the punk rock stuff too so mine was more jamerson mccartney and then the punk rock stuff so like we kind of had this melting pot of ideas and it was never ever steered towards a certain thing it's like someone would come up with a guitar line and mark's like well i'm gonna play the drums like this and i'm like okay well i'm gonna play the bass like this and then it's just whatever kind of came out so it's totally natural without like really thinking about what we were going to do. It was just a natural gut feeling. But it's interesting too, because 
there's an argument to be made for downstroking on a root note versus at that time, there was a minor shift where bass players were playing. I'll use the word melodic, but essentially it was iterations on walking. Mm -hmm. It's very cool. I think a lot of that came from the ska scene, which I, I was in a punk rock band with Mark. We were a punk ska band. We had a horn section and everything throughout high school, a band called The Posers. It was like the ska scene then kind of opened up the reggae scene, yeah. kind of opened up the jazz scene, all that with, you know, I want to hear more. I want to hear more walking lines. So the ska thing was a huge influence. Like you heard it in No Doubt, which blew up yeah. all over the place. So they're highly influential. And how do you see the scene now? How have things evolved for you? The band's out. Because you've got a new album out, 152, 152. Yeah. What are you calling it? 152, yeah, 152. Yeah. What do we call it? Yeah, 152. It's, it's an exit in Charlotte, North Carolina, or not, not Charlotte, but it was a meeting place where Adam, our singer, would meet up with his friends to go to shows all throughout North Carolina. So they'd say, hey, meet up at exit 152, and then we'll go to the show together. So, so that, that's where it you know, rang true to, to me. And then I just say 152. Yeah. So talk a bit about this because one of the things that comes out when you have these conversations about music, especially new music, especially bands that have legacy, Mm -hmm. 20 plus years, 30 plus years, is this feeling of, oh, is this actually a Taking Back Sunday song? These are the conversations that often happen. Do you still feel that way or do you feel like it's back in the day where someone starts saying, I'm going to play like this and I'm going to play like that? Like, How has it changed? Yeah, I mean that that has remained true through it all. And I think we have the most success when we're we're trusting our gut and going with it and when we're not overthinking things. There's been songs we've definitely o- overthought and maybe they didn't turn out exactly like we wanted or or they didn't they weren't greater than the sum of its parts, which is kind of our MO. I think that's the biggest thing. Like we learned on the Tidal Wave record to kind of go with our gut. The title track off that Tidal Wave, it was a much slower song that our guitar player John had written the bones for. He had the, the the guitar parts of the chord changes and, and the lyrics and melodies and it was it was pretty folky and mark just started playing like a bat out of hell ramon style clash style and sometimes we'd be like maybe you can't like maybe we're wearing our influences on our sleeve a little too much and then he was just like i have to do this and it was the right move and that kind of took us in a certain direction like we're not going to overthink things anymore so it started back then and it carried into the right end of 152 for sure it might also speak into how you think about when you're creating music, because as you were saying earlier, you and Mark have been friends for a while. It's over 30 years. Yeah. There's got to be something there where there's an intuition. Oh, 100%. 100%. Because he'll be all over the kit and stuff and, and coming up with new fills and stuff live and, and no two shows are 100% alike. And I'm right there with him. I'm, I'm always listening to what he's doing. In my mix, I have his kick and snare real high and I, I need the hi-hat too. And so I'm always paying attention to what he's doing. But yeah, I, I feel like I always get an idea of where he's going from the, all the years of playing and all the touring and all the time on stage and all the time in the studio. Absolutely. It's definitely, we're, we're speaking to each other and not using words. Do you reflect back to each other? Because if he's playing a certain part, he might intuitively know where you're going. Will he say something to you like, you should play something like this? Or will you say back something like, my line is going here. Why don't you do, or does that not? How oh yeah. Works. Oh yeah. Th- those, those are conversations all of the time. And he'll, he'll, he'll say, Hey, what do you think I should do here? And I'm like, okay, well, if you're doing that, what if I do this? Is that cool? And he's like, hell yeah. But also Adam and John are involved in that process too. If they hear something they like, they really speak up and let us know. And like a lot of times, sometimes I just have to work through ideas for a bit on my own before I'm like, okay, guys, I think I've whittled this down. What do you think? And they're like, you know what? That first thing was better. Okay, cool. Let's do that. But yeah, it's a huge collaborative process. 
So is writing a new album for Taking Back Sunday easier or harder because of all of this? Well, we had a hell of a lot of time to write this one. This is true. Yeah. So about so, seven uh, years to be exact. Yeah. 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 We had a big anniversary toward the 20 year anniversary of the band in 2019. And we knew that was going to take us throughout the world. And, and we were going to embrace and celebrate being in a band for 20 years because not a lot of people get to do that. And we knew the next year, 2020, we'd spend writing and, and refining and maybe have a new record in 2021. Well, the world shut down and we couldn't do anything. But privately, we were all kind of writing separately. And I was sending ideas out to the guys. And sometimes I'd get some good feedback. Sometimes I wouldn't get any feedback depending on where everyone's mental state was. Like, I'd be really excited about something. But someone's like, hey, man, I haven't left the house in like eight days. I don't care about music right now. Right. Noted. Got it. It's all right. So I think we all had those different moments. It was such an exciting time when we finally did get back into the studio in in like spring of 21 when it was you know safe to go outside and stuff. So it was really nice to have those time, have the ideas separate from each other, and then to start picking out what the best ideas were to start writing this record. And where do things start typically? Is it purely you playing something on the bass? Do you create on the bass? I, I rarely start something out. There, there was one song that didn't make the cut that started with very heavy distorted bass and we're going to revisit. It just didn't like, it just didn't fit. We didn't get enough time to work it out. So that was like the first thing I actually wrote specifically on the bass. I'll write usually on guitar and then make a bass line after that. And sometimes that guitar part goes away and the bass becomes the main thing. But usually I'll find the chords first while I'm, I'm working on stuff and maybe I'll add some keys or something over the top of it to give a sense of melody or something. But yeah, I rarely do write uh, initially on the bass. So where's the band at? Like you said, Tidal Wave came out in 2016, 152 is 2023. Is this now a new pace for the band where you're going to be recording and putting out more music and touring more? What is the general sentiment of this dynamic now? I, I don't know. I think I think we need to see how the response to this record is. I would like to tour on this record for a while, but we got to a really good place when, when we went back out on tour of picking days on days off on tour to get into a studio and, and start demoing things there and just being better writers, being more on top of it and working a little bit more instead of just spending a day off in a hotel room. Let's go to the studio. Let's get an idea down. So I think now I want to em embrace having more consistent releases. We need time home with the family like we talked about earlier. Yeah. So it's like finding that proper balance to do it all. But I would like to have a record every couple of years and be a bit more prolific. But also, I don't want to waste records. I don't want to put this record out and then go right back out, right back into the studio. And okay, next thing, next thing, next thing. Because I feel so passionate about it. I want everyone to hear this. And I want to make sure it gets the attention I think it deserves. How do you reflect on your bass playing? As it evolved, do you find it gets harder as you get older? Do you enjoy picking up the instrument? Is it an everyday thing? Is it I pick it up when I have to rehearse? How do you see the instrument? Yeah, I mean, I, I do pick it up from time to time. I'm more sitting down, like thinking about writing ideas with an acoustic guitar, usually when I'm at my house. But then when we get to writing, like it's such an enjoyable process to feel where that bass line should go and, and how it interacts with the vocals. And there was something about writing this record and maybe having the freedom and just feeling very loose in the studio and very excited to be there. I felt very free to create and explore the space and then whittle things down with the producer as time went on to, to see where it fit. Because a lot of times there'll be a vocal melody, maybe, but like usually we're writing with music first. So sometimes the vocal melody, you know, I think the vocal melody is most important thing. So I don't want my baseline to stomp on that. So I, I then whittle it down and pick my moments. So there, there was just a, a certain freedom 
with this album where I felt really good in working with our producer, Tushar Apti. He was just such a strong, strong voice in there and very encouraging with the places I was taking things. But I just loved putting on headphones and listening to a mix before I went in and recorded anything and just spend hours working on these ideas and where I could possibly take it. And it just knowing that the possibilities are endless with rhythm, with different choices I could make and, and knowing that sometimes I was good at pulling myself back and say, you know what, I'm not getting it today. Let's work on that tomorrow and you know, moving on to something else. Is there a particular technology that you've found yourself being more attracted to as the years come on and as technology changes? Are you a plug it in and go type of player? How do you see it? Yeah, yeah. I'm not too huge on certain technologies. I'm trying to find the name of the thing I have. <laughs> okay, so I have, a, I have a Fender Mustang Micro. And okay. that thing, it just plugs into the bass and connects with Bluetooth to your phone. And you put on headphones and you can hear your song and you can crank up the volume and, and play along to whatever. So I use that religiously because I need silence. I need to be able to hear what I'm doing. So if anyone's talking, I get totally distracted the way my ADD works or whatever it is. I can't focus in on anything. So I put on big headphones. I'd be in the most quiet place I could find and I just hammer away. So that was like the device that really helped me create. And like I can do stuff on the computer and things too. But that was the best way for me to connect with the songs and with my bass playing. And sounds, effects, adding strings into the mix, adding different types of basses, that too, or not really? Yeah, yeah. We did miss around with a bunch of different effects on this record, and Tushar was really cool with letting me explore those ideas and stuff. And I don't really know what I'm doing, but I just mess around with different sounds till I get something I like. Like, okay, cool. This feels like it fits the vibe of this song. Let's crank that thing. So yeah, I definitely played around with a couple like different envelope filters and things of that nature to mess around. And there's a whole lot of sub bass on this record, which is all, all due to, to Char, the producer. And it just really gives it some nice oomph underneath. But it also, I feel like it allowed my bass playing to stand out a little bit more because the bass play could be more in the mid range where the sub bass kind of mm -hmm. took care of everything beyond lower than that. Look, I remember the early days and getting, I think it was an Ibanez or Boss bass distortion pedal. And even plugging that in and messing with it, it messed with my head. Like too many options was yeah. freaking me out. Yeah, yeah. So when I see players who are mixing it up, I'm always so amazed. I, when I see a pedal board, I'm like, how do you know what's right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. My wonderful bass tech, Shug, set up my pedal board and stuff. So he does everything that goes out to front of house and like out to my ears and like gets the, the sound dialed in. But like I'll mess with the distortion pedal and like live. That's what I'm going with. Volume pedal distortion tuner. Like that's what I'm really, really using up there. There's a compressor on there. I barely know what that does, but he's, he's got it good. dialed in. And my front of house guy helps out too, making sure it sounds really good. But yeah, I am very similar to you. And you're a Fender bass guy, correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fender's been good to me. And it was like, that was the second bass I ever got. The first bass was a PV Foundation bass. The second one was a Fender Jazz. And I was like, this is it. The PV Foundation, which one was that? It's a black one with like, it, it's... I don't know. It kind of had like a soap bar-ish pickups. Okay. It's, I've got the T40. Okay, cool. Awesome. Which awesome. is the heaviest of all basses. It's like you can't carry that anywhere. It's insane. Yeah, yeah. My buddy, I think they made a guitar model too, right? Uh, terrible. Yeah, they're yeah, just so yeah, heavy. Yeah. It's yeah. That was one of my buddy's first guitars too. So like I had the PV bass, you know, the, the <laughs> right. foundation one. But yeah, it was definitely a solid bass and I sold it for like a 12-string guitar when I was like 16, I think. I think the favorite thing that I read about your instruments, and typically I don't like to talk about gear and that sort of stuff, but I thought it was mm -hmm. so great, is you have a Lake Placid Blue Getty Lee bass. It's a great story. Have you heard the story? I want you, you to tell anything? the story because I love these stories. 
So my friend, Billy Siegel, who's been my contact at Fender forever, he's been so good to me. I wanted a Lake Placid Blue bass for our Tidal Wave record. It had such a, a great water theme to it. And the record had has water on the front of it. And I was like, I want to embrace this and I need a blue bass. So I'm looking through the Fender website and I said, man, that Getty Lee American jazz, that's awesome. And I had one of the older Japanese models. I'm like, but man, this one looks amazing. Those block inlays are just spectacular. So I said, hey, is there any way you can do this in Lake Placid Blue? If not, like, that's all right. He goes, listen, I got to check with Getty to see if we can do it. He's like, he gets final approval on any bases we make. I said, that's the coolest thing I've ever heard in my life. He's going to see a mock-up of what my base might look like. And whether or not I get it, it's up to him. I'm like, cool. That's amazing. I'm in. So Getty approved my Lake Placid Blue base. So thank you, Getty. If you never met him, have you ever ran into him? Or no, no, I'd love to. I'd love, to, I'd love to have have a chat with him anytime. Well, it's coming up. He's got the effing book tour coming up, so I think he's hitting New York. He can run out. Cool, and see him. cool. I think there was a story. I could be wrong about this. That Getty is one of the few people who has the Jacko base with frets in it. Wow, that's incredible. He's the yeah, so cool. which is a great base too. If you ever get a chance to play any of the iterations that they've done on this Jacko bass. It's amazing. But the fact that his has frets on it is hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. I bought one of those, one of the ones that Fender made in like 2005 or six or something. So like I, I do have the, the fretless model. It's very sweet. I was at Norm's guitar this summer in LA. Nice. And yeah, they had one on the wall and I was like, oh, this thing is like butter. It plays so so well. But that's also cool. That Getty Lee bass is an amazing bass too. Like people swear by that model too. Oh, and, and like the, just the pickups right out of the box are great. Like it was just one of those things. And it was funny because I swapped it. I got it when uh, we were at the Fender showroom where Billy works when we were on tour and I swapped it out between soundcheck and the show. I just gave it to my tech. I said, I'm playing this tonight. And it Sorry. just had so much low end compared to the bass I was using. It was blowing me away. I'm like, I ran over to my monitor. I'm like, you got to EQ some of the low end out of it, man. It's crushing me. I can't even, I, it's, it's so cool, but I needed a little more clarity, but yeah, what a bass. I, I love it. It's got a pretty high tone too. Yeah, like it plays yeah, yeah. in both ranges in a really powerful way. It's just, it's an amazing bass. I know Corey, who runs NoTrouble.com, is a big fan of the Getty Lee basses as well. So we're awesome. We're yeah. we're all on and board and aligned with that. So you got your black belt not that long ago. Yeah, yeah. I've been training in Brazilian Jiu Jitsu since 2007, and it was one of those things. I needed a break from music back then. And I needed to get myself off the bar stool. I'm like, the, the bar is my hobby now. Like my hobby is my job and I do nothing else. I need to, to reset my brain. I need to work out and I hate going to the gym. I don't want to run on a treadmill or run down the street. Like it just, it doesn't work for me. I've tried it so many times. I don't want to do pushups in my bedroom. So my buddy, Nick, who was, you know, the, I talked about earlier, the guitar player had been training at, at Matt Sarah's Academy in East Meadow on, here on Long Island for a year. And I was like, dude, can you get me in there? Like, what do I have to do to sign up? So like, do I just walk in there? He's like, listen, I'm going to talk to them there and they're going to tell you a good time to come in for your intro class. And I went in for the first class and I just never left. I just kept coming back. And it's just one of the most enjoyable things I can do. I have so many friends there just to keep great company. And so it, it became like I, it, initially for the training and to blow off steam and, and to get a good sweat going. And now it's like, it's all that plus all the camaraderie of the, the friendships I've built up all uh, from all of these years. There's nothing like getting involved in any form of martial arts, but it's incredible to see how Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, partially because of the popularity of UFC, but has been yeah. able to really, 
it's almost like CrossFit in terms of the cultural acceptance of it. It's an amazing thing to see. Yeah, yeah, it's so fun. And, and my my buddy Nick always says he he's made so many contacts because he he continues to train and and he's in the in real estate and he's like the jujitsu mats became the new golf course. Yeah, totally. And so, and so when that. you're in other cities, do you roll? Do you find places locally or? From time to time, I, I will. It, it depends. I have to be very picky. I, I don't want to get hurt. Well, that's, that's the like my, thing too. Yeah, it's very crazy. And and days off from all the energy we put into the live shows and stuff. Sometimes, most times on a day off, I will just need to kind of sit there and and talk to the family and stuff. So it's very tricky to to figure that out. We were on tour with Third Eye Blind last summer, and one of the people that that worked for the band was a guy named Danny Marks, who is a black belt under Caesar Gracie and came up with the wow. Nick Diaz. Yeah. So they, Steven from third eye blind would train with Danny. And I said, Hey man, I've been training for a long time. Like, could I jump in with you guys? Like, you know, I'm not, not taking any liberties. I'm not a tough guy. Like I'm just looking to, you know, get a sweat and learn some good techniques. And they welcomed me in. They couldn't have been nicer. And we had a great summer before the shows. We'd set up some mats and we'd go for an hour, hour and a half sometimes. And, and just have a blast. I'd shower up and go play my show. And then, uh, you know, I was feeling good at the end of the night. Yeah. The, the fear with this stuff for me, and I've been training a long time too, is the injury stuff is interesting. One is as you get older, there's just a natural caution you have to throw at it. But the other part that's even scarier is who you're rolling with. Yeah. 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 There's I've a lot of faith you're putting into these people and they don't realize that I got to get on a plane tomorrow. Like I can't get injured. I can't have a black eye. I can't, you know, yeah, yeah, and like that's the thing. I could, I could have a black eye. Like, would it, it, that that's not the end That'd of the world. A, but I need my but hands a joint, to work. Yeah, a joint problem is, is not good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I need to be able to stand. That'd be good too. So yeah, I, I, I pick and choose who I roll with. Sometimes I'm just like, nah, man, I'm not into it. Like, I, if I don't know somebody, I got to know somebody really well before I'll train with them. And even if I know them, I got to know that they're going to train nicely with me because I used to jump in with everybody. I was a lunatic when I was younger, but as I got older, I was like, you know what, what, what am I doing? I don't want to be a UFC champion. I don't want to be a jujitsu champion. I'm just a, a hobbyist who really enjoys the sport yeah. and I enjoy the mental side of things and, and learning this, this great thing. So what's my end game here to get out of here uninjured and feeling good. So yeah, that, that's how I'm going to go. And is that gi or no gi? Both, both. I've been okay. a little more focused on the nogi to protect my hands. All the grips and stuff got mm -hmm. a, got a little scary a few times. I'd hold on a little bit too long. And so I was like, you know what? The nogi seems a little bit safer. It's a lot faster, but in that sense, my fingers are a bit safer. And what's it like for you now? Are you training often? Do you train as often or is it cyclical for you? Yeah, it, it's really cyclical when I have enough time. And, and with all the stuff we have to do, I really haven't been training, but I'll train at the house. I'll invite some friends over and stuff and put out some mats in the backyard and, and get some good training in, in here and, and just have a blast. Who are some of the bass players that you like to check out now? Like, Who's inspiring you now? Hmm, it's a good question. I've been listening to a lot of pop music and I, I forget, I don't, I don't know who's playing like Harry Styles record. Harry yeah. Styles is just tremendous record. It just, it sounds so great. Like I, I love, I love all the stuff Post Malone has been doing. Yeah. That's um, great. The band Heim, I think is tremendous. I, I'd really like them to put out a new record soon. They've been opening for Taylor Swift and stuff. And I think Taylor Swift is great. Um, so yeah, I'm not so focused on like following different bass players. Like I still love Rancid. Like I'm still listening to all the guys I grew up on and listening to their new music as well. So I'm not too tuned into like who's coming up. Well, I'm more curious about as we get older and I'm about 10 years older than you, I'm not, I was always the person who knew what was new and loved yeah. what was new and right meeting and blah, blah, blah. And as I get older, I find myself exploring really different genres of music that is surprising to me. Yeah. For me, you know, the bigger one was going really deep. I was really into weird jazz, but getting into 
the more standard stuff and getting into even like the Coltrane and Miles Davis's that mm-hmm. I just wasn't my thing. And now I find myself going down rabbit holes. And even I'll go back you know, right now. I've been in a lot of eighties pop and it's surprising to me. I mean, look, there's some killers. There's Mark King and level 42. Yeah. The stuff that tears for fears was even doing was really intense. Cause I think it was directly related to Paul McCartney, what the Beatles were up to. Mm-hmm. But I just, think about how some of these songs were constructed. One hit one. There's songs that you would just pass off as elevator music at this point. And like, you could never recreate that sound anymore. In fact, I think the people like Harry Styles have tried to even replicate that sound. It's like impossible to replicate. 100%. I think that's what connects with me to that music. It reminds me of being a kid and seeing this new generation, like, you know, Taylor Swift, like this generation's Whitney Houston. Like I love Whitney Houston songs and her voice is just so amazing. And my family gives me so much flack. I have this giant playlist. I take family on road trips and I put on all the 80s hits like Madonna, Michael Jackson, Bangles. Like, what what are you doing? This stuff is so old. It stinks. I'm like, this is amazing. What are you talking about? So, yeah, it's very uh, Phil Collins. Oh, my God. Oh, God. Yeah, I could talk about him for ages. Like, I have this weird thing with Phil Collins where there's the whole early Genesis stuff that I had to go back to because when it started, I was just born. Yeah. So there's the Peter Gabriel, Phil Collins, that split. Then there's the Phil Collins stuff where because of when I grew up, it was very pop and very popular. But when you go back and listen to how it's done, it blows your mind. And Peter Gabriel is another anomaly. I just yeah. saw him live. And forget the fact that Tony Levin's been on the show and he's a great guy and he's incredible. Yeah. But I was watching Peter Gabriel thinking, what a strange career. Like this album so came out and it was so, these songs are so massive that it doesn't matter what he plays before or after. They're just not those songs. Yeah. And again, I go down this rabbit hole of, like Take Me Home by Phil Collins, I think is one of the craziest songs of all time. That is one of my favorite songs. Like that, oh, that's it? the first song on the playlist. And that's it hilarious. connects with me in such like a, a guttural, visceral way. It is just so beautiful and it yeah. makes me feel so good, especially when I'm away. Like I'll crank that in my hotel room and have a good dad cry while I'm missing the yeah, family. Yeah. I'm like, oh my God, Phil, you know, you know what it's all about, man. But crazier is if you've ever rabbit holed really on this, you'd know that go on YouTube and the live versions of it, there's some versions of it where this band is just destroying. They're just unbelievable. And the police would be another one too, yeah. like synchronicity and mm-hmm. all that stuff that's thing that like I heard it as pop music and hits when I was growing up. But when you go back to listen to it as a fan of music, there's so many layers to this stuff that blows me away. Yes. I mean, and then like, that was the thing. They hired all of the most talented musicians, most talented songwriters. Like, and and you can tell, you can tell there was so much love and care and passion behind all of that. And I think, you know, maybe a lot of the newer, like TikTok pop and stuff has kind of missed the boat on that kind of, that kind of love and care. Yeah. Recently for me, it was, we had Daryl Jones on the show. So spending time with him was incredible. And I had forgotten that he was called in to do bring on the night with Sting and Omar Hakim. And there's this documentary of them somewhere in Paris doing stuff. And again, I'll rabbit hole on that. And then that'll send me down another jazz corridor. But at the same time, thinking about like, so Sting and the police. And I love that connective tissue of music. That's this, and it's so bass driven. It really is. There's so much bass going on there. Yeah. 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 It's amazing. I love all this stuff. I could talk about yeah. this stuff for hours. It's yeah, amazing. yeah. I can't believe you said, take me home. <laughs> That's the first song that comes on. And my parent, my family goes, ah, ah. Yeah, we know I mean, playlists if I'm doing my weepy dad in the corner when I'm on the road, it's that. It's uh, Sailing by yes, Christopher that song, Cross. 
Yeah, I could listen to that song on repeat and weep all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that same with all the guys in my band, too. We love Christopher Cross. Oh, good. I wasn't sure if I was going to say that because that can be taken one way or the other for sure. No, no, right with you. It's funny that we, you know, we're talking about this because yacht rock has become a, a genre in and of itself, which is something that's so unexpected. Yeah. And I don't know exactly why that is, but I just need the the piece of it. Like it makes me feel mm-hmm. so good. It makes me think about being out on a boat, the sun's setting, everything's good. Everything's so calm. Good, we got calm seas, we got a nice breeze pushing us and things are going to be all right. I it's think we need time. a lot of that. Yeah. It's a good time. So the new album is called one five two. Let people know where they might be able to connect to you. I know you're doing some stuff on Instagram. You're busy on Instagram. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like to to update the stories and stuff. I'm not as prolific at it as I should be. I need to improve my Instagram and I need to improve my open hammer plucking. Right. (laughs) TikTok can probably help you do both. There you go. There you go. (laughs) So, so yeah, yeah. It's it's, uh, Sean W. Cooper on everything. Threads, Instagram, Twitter, and TBS official on Twitter. I think it's Taking Back Sunday. I think we got that on Instagram, I think. But yeah, yeah, we're, we're all over the place. We're pretty easy to find. That's awesome. Sean, thanks so much for your time. Mitch, it was a pleasure, man. Great meeting you. Great talking to you. Uh-huh.